0: Hello, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. Whether you're joining us for the first time, the second, or are now three for three in your episode listening endeavors, we extend our sincere thanks and appreciation. Your support means a lot. My name is Kevin Drouli, and I'm an Associate Editor with Safety and Health. With me, as always, are fellow Associate Editors Barry Bettino and Alan Ferguson. Gentlemen, please say hello to the nice listeners.
1: Hello. Hi, everybody.
0: We hope everyone is safe and healthy amid the evolving uncertainty of the COVID-19 pandemic. As we discussed in our April episode, the Safety and Health team is following Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommendations to work remotely. Before this, I would telework sporadically, but it really has been an adjustment to do so each day, no doubt. i found that walking is a good release when weather permits and the pavement outside the apartment is clear of too much commotion. But how about you guys? Any quick observations or anecdotes to share about your own work-from-home experiences?
1: I, I'm the same with you, Kevin. I would work from home sporadically before this. Uh, so for me, I think what's been helpful is finding different locations in the house to work. Uh, so one day I'll be at the kitchen table and one day I'll be in a spare room. You know, So that's been helpful. How about you, Alan?
2: Um, yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, I work from home one day a week, uh, so I have a little bit more experience, but not too much. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things that we're all probably experiencing is how kind of our spouses work and, and you get an observation into their daily lives. But the other part of it for me is the cats. I, I have two cats and I just wonder what they think during this time. <laughs> are, they, uh, are they happy to see us? Do they wonder what's going on? Are we cramping their style? So that sort of thing kind of has run through my head in, in kind of an odd way.
0: Well, in this episode, we'll do a deep dive as always with one of our stories from the May issue of Safety and Health, covering control banding. We'll also talk with Paul McNeil, who's a former OSHA inspector, and delve a little more into his career in the safety field. All right, is everybody ready? Let's go.
1: Each month here at On the Safe Side, we take a closer look at a feature story from the pages of Safety and Health magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. And this month, Alan wrote a in-depth piece about control banding, and how a growing number of safety professionals are finding uses for this risk assessment system kind of outside of its usual place, which is in facilities that use bulk chemicals. Alan's going to discuss how expanding the use of control banding has benefited safety and health across the board, and kind of which industries have benefited the most. Alan, why don't you take us on a deep dive into this topic?
2: Well, thank you very much for that intro, and I will say this is one of the more interesting and uh, peculiar features, perhaps, that I've written in my three years here at the magazine. And control banding is not overly straightforward. It's kind of conceptual in nature. And what it is, it's a qualitative system of risk assessment and kind of corresponding ways of dealing with those risks, and that's where the word control comes from. And the way I describe it is trying to use what is known or some of what is known to, to manage the unknown. Now, control banding is mainly used in chemical safety and industrial hygiene, and that's because 99% or thereabout of chemicals don't have occupational exposure limits and because the manufacturing of chemicals moves so much more quickly than the study and confirmation of OELs, and that's probably not very surprising. Um, The concept of control banding started in the pharmaceutical industry, and that's obviously one such industry that can manufacture new products, as we all know. Um, Control banding was a way to protect employees from active ingredients in those products. And in the absence of those OELs, what is looked at is a band, and this is where the banding comes from, the band of hazards, such as skin and eye irritants and carcinogens and Again, you, you pair that with an appropriate control method, whether that's ventilation, dilution, or containment. And as TJ Lintz from NIOSH says in my story, control banding is based on two pillars: um, It's the limited number of control methods available to protect workers and quote, that many problems have been met and solved before, unquote. Now this approach is different from occupational exposure banding hazard banding, or health hazard banding, because those systems don't offer um, potential controls. And those controls, the part of control banding, are determined by a number of different factors, according to our friends at the Canadian Center for Occupational Health and Safety. um, Among those factors are how poisonous or dangerous is a chemical product, the exposure time for a worker, um, how easily it can get into a worker's body, uh, you know, fine dust is an example of that, and, and the type of work being done, and and the greater the health hazards and the higher exposure potential, the stricter the controls. Now, that's usually done via, a lot of times, via a grid method. Um, you'll look at um, risk level one or risk one, and you'll have different levels, and then you'll pair it with, once somebody hits that threshold, with a um, certain control.
0: so. You mentioned that grid just a moment ago and this question addresses that. So what you're telling us is it sounds like an organization might say, well, if we have this grid and we know what controls to put in place, why do we need industrial hygienists? Is, is this a concern? Was it a concern?
2: Yes, it, it was a concern among certain stakeholders that it, employers could use this system. Again, that grid to replace trained industrial hygienists, but TJ Linz from NIOSH says that hasn't proven to be the case. But he cautions that organizations that want to use this technique should, should definitely consult a certified industrial hygienist. And he adds that control banding really needs professionals to provide recommendations, and you need exposure monitoring and oversight to make sure the controls are working properly. Well,
1: Alan, one interesting part that you mentioned in your story is the potential use of control banding in, in other parts of workplace safety. Can you explain a little bit more about that?
2: So yeah, this uh, this is through a gentleman named David Zalk, who's in a deputy EHS team leader at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. He's proposed using this, this kind of technique in other areas. And a lot of that stems from his experience as an industrial hygienist and also the organizational structure at Lawrence Livermore, uh, where subjects such as confined space and welding are not necessarily fall under occupational safety, they fall under industrial hygiene. And another part is that Lawrence Livermore um, is focused on research and development, which including explosives and which can definitely create new unknown hazards and, and new challenges. And the laboratory also has to navigate a number of OSHA and Department of Energy regulations, and now um, Zalk and others wrote in a 2010 paper published in the journal Industrial Health that uh, Lawrence Livermore's Department of Energy contract requires the lowest, established op- oc- the lowest established occupational exposure limit for given chemical, physical or biological exposure. And to accomplish that, and we talked about the grid, they use a risk, uh, risk level base management grid for work tasks with prevent- potential severity and the probability of injury is the two axes. And from there, they'll fill in risk management controls on a grid with the, the risk levels ranked from one to four. And that's geared toward ensuring uh, regulatory compliance. Uh, one thing, great thing about this is you can also get workers involved at this point and get their input to de- determine hazards and risk and controls. So for risk level one, employees work with minimal or no oversight. And there's perhaps an, in you know, intermittent inspection or inspections that take place during this time. And for risk level two, uh, established tasks with approved controls are logged by a supervisor. And there are pe- periodic reviews of said task, um, procedures and controls when needed. So when we get to our um, risk level three, that's when you, you start requiring permits, you know, such as confined space permits or hot work permits would, would be examples of this. Um, kind of review of hazards and controls goes through the EHS team and other supervisors and OHS specialists need to quote-unquote formally concur with those findings and for Risk Level 4 it's a really a documented thorough review of hazards and control takes place with the EHS team, the workers, and the supervisors and to perhaps illustrate those last two examples even better in Zalk's proposed grid for construction, the risk levels, also 1 to 4, corresponded to the type of job site training needed. So, RL4 required a safety expert on site, for example. Risk level 3 requires a competent person. And if you want a good image of all these risk levels, here's a, uh, another metaphor. Uh, Zalk describes level 1 as a green light, levels 2 and 3 are yellow lights, and level 4 is a red light. And in the red light situations, work needs to stop, and you need to get everyone on the same page as far as hazards, risk, and control. And what that system does is allow, at least as Zalk told me, uh, allows Lawrence Livermore's EHS team to focus its efforts and time and resources on the riskiest or riskier actions, uh, one of the other benefits is um, more consistency among industrial hygienists. It also gets the workers in the habit of contacting the safety team if they're unsure about anything. Uh, quote, the dotted line between risk levels two and three, all Zalk wants them to do is pick up the phone. And when we have them picking up the phone and asking us questions in the middle of the task, something has changed. And he says, that risk-low communication has been a great byproduct out of all of this.
1: That's excellent, Alan. It's a really unique topic, as you said, and and I really enjoy how it can translate to to other industries as well. And, Alan, we appreciate you sharing your insights on this topic. For folks who want to learn more, go ahead and check out the May issue of Safety and Health Magazine to see Alan's work on this story. And you can also find that story on our website at safetyandhealthmagazine.com.
0: If you're listening to this podcast, we're pretty sure you like staying safe on the job and keeping others safe as well. We're also pretty sure that you want to stay safe and healthy when you're away from work, and we have a great way to help you out. It's Family Safety and Health Magazine, from the makers of the award-winning Safety and Health Magazine. Family Safety and Health has tips and advice on topics from the home to the roadway, and from your local parks and recreation areas to your medicine cabinet. Visit nsc.org/wellness or call 800-621-7619 to learn how you can get a subscription for yourself, your co-workers, your friends, and your family. Remember, that's Family Safety and Health, brought to you by the same team that brings you Safety and Health magazine each and every month.
2: Our guest on this episode is Paul McNeil, an ocean inspector for more than a decade in New York and a current senior safety consultant in Insperity. Paul was also one of the sources for my story, What to Expect When OSHA is Inspecting, that appeared in the June 2019 issue of Safety and Health Magazine. And he was such an informative and entertaining interview subject that I thought he'd make a fine guest for this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Paul, and I hope I haven't set the bar too high. Before we get started, how are you doing?
3: I'm doing just fine. We're managing as best we can with this uh, pandemic and trying to be the best service we can to our clients.
2: Just to let everyone know, once again, this segment is five questions with dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. We also have an additional question related to our guests' lives and interest away from work that we call our POP quiz. Okay. To kick things off, how is the COVID-19 pandemic currently affecting your work as a safety professional, or how is it affecting the safety profession from your view, or how might it affect the safety profession going forward?
3: Well, great question, Alan. Uh, so far, we're working with via telephone conferences and consultations with our clients. Uh, it's the ones that we can reach, the ones that have organized their working-at-home groups. Uh What I miss, what's affecting me is I miss the one-on-one interactions with clients at their places of business, and I miss doing training presentations. That's where I have my most fun, drawing on my prior OSHA experience and pass, passing that down. And uh so... As a group, you know, one time once when it was starting to get me down, I picked up the paper and this is really across the board. When you look and see the Pope blessing an empty St. Peter's Square, it's not just about the safety profession. (laughs) It's across the board. We're gradually looking at clients, gradually allowing people back into their offices. They may have restrictions like please wear a mask, please put on these gloves, And they may carry that on for a month or so after this is, uh, quote, unquote, phased out a bit.
1: Yeah, great point. I wanted to to kind of follow up with you. As Alan mentioned, you spent more than a decade as an OSHA inspector. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit, what are some misconceptions about that job and perhaps about OSHA in general that people may have?
3: Uh, One of them is that, that some people might think we get additional revenue or the OSHA gets paid more. Or my performance rating might be higher if I issue or propose more citations. That's not true at all. As a matter of, as a matter of law, we cannot be graded on or given quotas per se on how many citations to issue or how many inspections to run. That, that's one of the biggest ones I hear. And the second one is that all ocean inspectors are the same which is not at all, as as far as I'm concerned, I've been around a lot of us and we're as different as night and day most of the time, educational backgrounds and perceptions. And we're also not there to summarily shut down a business. We're there to keep employees away from imminent danger or injuries of any sort. That's about the two or three that jump out. There's a, a number of them that come up here and there as as you go through inspections, though.
0: Well, again, that's a nice lead into our next question, Paul. Mm-hmm. Let's say that I'm running a business and, of course, we manufacture widgets or a fictional product and the ocean
3: inspector shows up. What are some things that I should not do? Okay. Well, the, the first thing not to do is be uh, belligerent. The ocean inspector shows up and let's say they show their credentials and you say, I'm sorry, we don't. Uh, did you make an appointment? Don't tell them to leave. Don't start getting hostile. The reason is not not that I would be affected by it at all, but they've just drawn a lot of attention to themselves by doing that. And another one is, as you're sitting, or let's say you, you invite them into your conference room, is start lecturing them or berating them on how much smarter you guys are than the ocean specter is. Well, I think there's an old saying they call it "too clever by half." I think is the expression. You don't know how much information you'll give away if you cross that line and do that. Um, and the other thing not to do is not having an OSHA plan. If um, if there is so much organization already in an organization as having a safety team, one of the things they should include is what do we do when and if OSHA shows up? And there's a whole bunch of stuff that one can do before, during, and after that will really help them out a lot may not keep them totally citation-free, but it will do a lot to keep their employees from getting injured, and which, of course, results in them being in compliance. In the article Alan uh, put together uh, last year, uh, it was very, very politely written. One of the former OSHA people had, had relayed or emailed that if you do that, OSHA, if you have a standard practice of saying, go get a warrant, can't come in here without a warrant, uh, Ocean might come back with their two, several of their more experienced compliance officers that are more adept at at, uh, spawning citations. One of the things that happened to me over my career was somebody did get belligerent, insisted on a warrant. My supervisor got on the phone and let them know that it will go much easier if you let us conduct our inspection. And before he made that call, he was holding up several pens to me and saying, You know what to do. How many gallons of inks in this pen? Translation, it's not a good thing to do.
2: On the flip side, I know we talked about this for my story. What Mm -hmm. things should people do before the OSHA inspector shows up, especially if their business or organization is part of, say, an emphasis program? Okay. Also, what should they do
3: during the inspection or after? Sure. The first thing I would do is, if I'm on the safety team, have have an OSHA plan. What that would do before they ever get there is... Any and all safety training and programs, have it documented. OSHA, when I was with OSHA, the 11th Commandment, as far as I was concerned, and what I've observed firsthand on the 50-yard line, is if it's not written down and if it's not transmitted to the employees, that if you don't have attendance sheets attached to your training or have employees sign in as part of their uh, welcoming on board training, they should be safety trained. Let's say I have programs on lockout, tagout, or personal protective equipment. All that training should be documented. That's one thing. Have your programs in place and training. The other part is pick your people who may or may not have to deal with OSHA when and if they show up. Have managers on your safety team that have some versatility in safety. They don't have to be experts, but have some knowledge where the safety programs, perhaps have them participate in putting them together. Um, have, have them shared and uh, have an OSHA drill uh, such as let's say OSHA does show up. During that time there will be something I call the golden hour that can be worked to your advantage. The directive states the OSHA inspector will wait a reasonable amount of time up to approximately an hour before it would the inspection could be marked that there was a delay in conducting the inspection. I advise anyone The person who greets the OSHA inspector, escorts him to the conference room and asks him what the inspection is about. I would suggest, respectfully suggest, it's not in a directive and you'll never find this in a safety book. Pick somebody in your organization that has one of those personalities, the host with the most, somebody who can for up 45 minutes to an hour with somebody coming into your place of business, be cordial dash neutral. In other words, why are you here? Oh, that that's interesting. We have people or procedures. I'll call them and get them ready for you so we can have an opening conference. Any questions they might ask, have this person versed in not trying to one-up the ocean specter intellectually, not trying to lecture them on how much smarter you guys are, because you, you may open the door, as I tell people, to a lot of lines and inquire giveaway information that you never would have. So, for example, when my 36-year federal career, I was uh, initially got my start in safety in the post office. When OSHA would show up, generally I was the person designated to meet them. And when they ask a question, I have a habit, of just asking, that's a very interesting question. A lockout program? Is lockout one word or two? You place a hyphen between the word lock and out. Interesting. Let me write that down. I'll go call and see if everybody's on their way to ask to meet you. Meanwhile, back on your plant or workroom floor, your your managers who have some versatility on what to do when OSHA shows up, the things you can get done immediately are clear away any exits that might have been temporarily blocked. Let's say what shipments of whatever your place of business has coming and going. You're only human. Okay, there's a norm, normal flow to business. Have that unblock your exits. Make sure that's done. During that 45 minutes, make sure your, make sure your fire extinguishers aren't blocked. During that 40, during that 45 minutes, let's say if a piece of equipment might be hazardous or whatever, or your people might know not to, (coughs) excuse me, not to uh, use it, make sure it's red tag marked. You can do a lot of good during that time to put yourself in a much better light that's that's as they show up again the person who greets them should be neutral cordial give them a cup of coffee you can talk about where did you come in from uh what does it take to be an ocean inspector me i was great at getting them gabbing because i just played the host with the most and i acted very concerned where is where is the team that has to greet you now during the ocean during the ocean inspector inspection itself what I what I would do is, uh, first of all, the managers come in and meet with them. You go over what you have to do. You may, may or may not answer, be asked the questions about your safety programs. Answer only the question that you're asked. If you're asked about a lockout-tagout, hopefully you have it. If you have processing machinery that you maintain and or clean, you should have a documented lockout-tagout program. You can proffer any program that they ask you for at that time. Or ask them to put their inquiry in writing, and you can get back to them concerned concerning that within a very reasonable period of time. During the walk around, this is during the ocean inspection. As you're walking around, have the area where the walk around will be. Uh, you you can have that you can have that uh, outlined in your plan before, depending on what the ocean inspector says. Let's say you're doing processing. A national emphasis program on amputations and machinery is only in one area. Let's say it's in one building in one certain designated area. Just walk around that particular area. The OSHA inspector is able to, he or she can make notes and take photographs. You as your business can also uh, take notes, take the same photograph the OSHA inspector is doing. And I advise you to have your managers versed be in being neutral, cordial not confrontational and belligerent. Again, you're raising inquiries. In other words, what either this complaint or what's in the national emphasis program might be negative in this business if you act defensive. You can ask them, pardon me, um, pardon me, sir, Uh, what is that you're taking a photo of? Okay, we'll take a photo too. And ocean inspectors know that you, and as an employer, are entitled to take the exact same photo at the same time that they are. Okay? There's no harm in asking what they're photographing and making note of. Then the ocean inspector, when they are walking around, is entitled to uh, interview employees. Mys- myself, when I was with OSHA for 12 years, I usually did a random sample. And or if you have a union representative, I ask them to join us in the beginning and the opening conference if the business is unionized. At uh, that point, when, when you walk in around, I usually pick a random sample of employees. I ask the employer, you know, we can speak with them privately. And that's usually a very summary, just few questions, your name, how long have you worked here? Do you have any safety training? Does management uh, introduce any safety topics to you? If it's yes, no, I mark it down. And uh, you might have some employees that are, don't have the best opinion of management. They might not answer me truthfully. That's where documenting safety training, if one employee says no and the records the employer has says absolutely yes, they will hear that day in its documentation, the benefit of a doubt goes to the employer. Back to my point before, the 11th commandment with OSHA is documentation. If an employee is saying something that's not true and the employer is documented to the, to the other side, that's all, in their, that's all to their benefit to do. So at the closing of it, at let's say we're coming to the close. I always did a preliminary quick close on an employer's property, a summary of what may or may not lead to a citation. that may or may not have a uh, financial uh, penalty to it or a fine attached. That's where the point where you can respectfully differ with the ocean inspector, If you took a photo and he or she took a photo, and let's say you marked a piece of equipment not in use, uh, you can show that in your photo. Hmm, see, Mr. Ocean Specter, we had that before. He or she may not agree with you. Then they go back to their office. They drop the report. The area director reviews it, and they'll call you maybe a few weeks later for another closing conference. Um, that during that time, let's say the fines have been issued at that time. Within 15 working days of signing a certified letter from OSHA and you've received fines, make an appointment to come in as quickly as you can and have an uh, informal conference in the OSHA office with the, either the area director or the assistant area director. It's not uncommon at all to withdraw a citation or two that you bring to their attention. I usually suggest to people it's not a good idea to complain about how unfair they are, you pay your taxes, that uh, you didn't like the looks of the OSHA inspector that showed up, things like that. Stick with, make your notes, make your photos, let them do your talking. Uh, during, by the way, the closing conference, there is a part on the OSHA inspection for negative employer attitude. When the ocean specter, he or she is reading off what may or may not lead to a citation, it may or may not have a fine. Anything you say at that point, if it's really off the scale, belligerent or whatever, is duly noted. Anything that you might say like, well, I pay my blankety blank taxes, how dare you? That's all noted. You've just taken your credibility away for, your co- for any informal conference, either in front of the area director or if you file a contest where you may have uh, discuss it with the uh, regional solicitor before it may or may not get to a judicial review. During the informal conference, you may or may not like the results of it. At that time, you still have more rights. You may file a handy area director, a letter of contest, where your case file is sent for review by the regional solicitor, which is the attorney for OSHA, one of the attorneys for that region for OSHA. They will schedule a call with you. You can request that this particular fine be withdrawn due to do a photo and you really think strongly. Let's say they have, well, at that point, they have more authority to reduce your fine further. The area director can reduce it anywhere from 30 to 40 percent. The regional solicitor has the authority to dial your fine back by 60 or more percent and withdraw an additional fine, withdraw an additional penalty. If you're still stuck with that and you want to uh, still contest, what that point might that point what the regional solicitor does many times is makes a note of it, sends the case file back to the area director, because each region is tends to be overloaded highly with fatalities and news grabbing cases that uh, uh, they're getting heat on from Washington concerning catastrophes they may now note to the area director, either settle this post-contest or withdraw the case. Withdraw the case means everything's dropped. I tell people not to make it a point to do that too often or every time, although they may end up doing that in your case because if you're what we call a frequent flyer, somebody who is always getting in the safety mischief, they're going to catch on quick and they're going to take you before an administrative law judge. And I assure you, he or she has, looking at photos and careful notes by the compliance officer, has the authority to keep it 100% of the original fines. Nothing's withdrawn.
1: Well, I think that's all great advice, Paul. I mean, it's it's nice to hear a, a walkthrough of everything, the entire process, and I think that's helpful for businesses. And I really enjoy the advice about finding a great host for the OSHA inspector and not making it a confrontational meeting, You know, which it doesn't need to be, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul, we we have a feature in our magazine called My Story, and and that details safety professionals' journeys into the profession. And we're curious about your journey into safety and, and any career highlights and, and people who helped you along the way.
3: Sure. Well, I had a 36-year federal career. I was in the military, three years, nine months, and six days, but who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> then I was in the post office, and I got my start. Uh, I was working as a carrier instructor, and the lady who taught safety there was from our Area office, and I kept requesting to ever have an opening there for maybe an internship. No, each time she came to teach. No, each time. Finally, finally, she was going away uh, on a detail somewhere else. Said, "Tell you what, you do write a letter to my boss here. I'll put in a word, and uh, we'll see where it goes." So she was kind enough to put in a word, and I got a detail for four months with the post office, which gave me some cred to apply for a full-time postal safety job. I got my start in the bulk mail center in Jersey City, which is uh, one of the largest processing plants in the nation. I would tell people it's a station or a building, but frankly, it's more like a mini city or a town. You have every type of processing equipment and machine guarding uh, subject that will come up, and it's heavily unionized. And that's, that's where you go from what you read technically to learning as you're seeing as you're doing. I always advise people don't be afraid to do the grunt work. You know, learn, see, do. It starts out slowly. After that, with four years in uh, the postal safety, I finished up at another uh, place, a center, the James A. Farley building across from Madison Square Garden. Then I got hired by OSHA, and I always have a policy of the you know, payment forward. I put in a word or make introductions for OSHA internships when possible. I write articles on, uh, ocean, actually what we're talking about today, the ocean, uh, ocean inspections. I put them on my LinkedIn profile and I put my, my story about how I got my CSP, Certified Safety Professional, how I studied for that. And I post some of my study aids, my flashcards. And anybody who is on LinkedIn with me and reads my articles, I've gotten hundreds of requests for those. And always happy to send them out and pay it forward. People were kind to me. That's basically it. Oh, by the way, the way reason I got hired by OSHA was the person on the OSHA interview panel uh, had responded to several uh, cases that came out of the Bolt Mail Center. They had a couple of fatalities there back in the late 70s, early or mid 80s. And this person was on the panel. He was impressed by my dealing with unions and dealing with the vast uh, machine guarding issues that came up.
0: That's,
3: that's, that's about the nutshell version
0: of it. Quite interesting, nutshell or otherwise. We appreciate your insight. Sure. I know everything you've discussed is certainly of grave importance. Really, worker safety and health is that by definition. Uh-huh. But we all need some levity in our lives, and our pop quiz question focuses on those interests away from work. Sure. We understand, Paul, that you have an appreciation for stand-up comedians. Mm-hmm. And living along the Hudson Valley, I'm sure you're not too far away from many clubs. Mm-hmm. With your background and interest and your time spent studying comedy, who are some of your favorite comedians of all time, past and present?
3: Well, my interest is I've done a lot of public speaking, and Improvisational came up. There's a place that uh, a lady that does theater nearby, she holds Improvisational Comedy Seminars, which is basically thinking on your feet you know, in an ensemble group. And it does add an edge or adds a good flavor to my public presentations. I live off audience contact. I always have and uh also some my favorite improvisational comic i believe was robin williams uh i met the person who worked with him when he was in juilliard uh he was a young up-and-comer there and we had him as a guest in our place and he described what working with him was like and i'm also i've taken one or two uh comedy classes downtown in manhattan i one of the Facets of comedy I like is observational comedy. Ron White is a very, very well-known one. I like, uh, like his stuff. I, many of his albums are, are really great. And uh, I was thinking, you know, look, looking on the light side, and I blend it into my, again, my presentations. I have no ambitions to be a comedian, but some people have said you should be, but if they knew how hard it was to actually break through there, they would think twice. <laughs> I don't give it a second thought. I just do it as recreation. But, um, and I think it adds a flavor. I mean, safety in and of itself is very technical with my years of actually seeing uh, the front lines of OSHA and presenting it with a bit of a, with a bit of levity. Add something to the presentations.
2: Paul, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Paul. We really appreciate it.
2: My and, pleasure.
3: Uh, take care during this time. Take care. Okay. Thank you very much. It's been, uh, been a pleasure.
2: Well, guys, this is episode three, so we know the drill by now. Um, we've all pondered the pop quiz question myself, and I'll, I guess I'll go first. Um, my favorite comedian's past or present, I would have to say um, John Mulaney. Uh, Patton Oswalt, when he gets rolling, I mean, he just I, I find myself crying. And then I guess the comedian from the past is Mitch Hedberg. I mean, every time I pass by an escalator, I, I mean, I have to have a chuckle because of his whole bit about that. That, that you know escalators can never break; they can only become stairs. And, you know, sorry for the convenience. The escalator <laughs> temporarily, <laughs> escalator temporarily stairs. And just all the little funny one-liners he had about you know rice is great if you uh, are hungry and you want five million of something.
1: So <laughs> I like those answers, Alan. I I would say from the past for me, um, I always watched a lot of Saturday Night Live when I was growing up. Um, so Chevy Chase was someone who. Always made me laugh and and still does to this day. And I'd say currently, um, I think a guy who's very popular is Sebastian Maniscalco, who's pretty funny. Um, Kevin, how about you?
0: Mine are mostly from the past. I could use to get up to speed, and I don't want to say I'm out of touch. I know NBC used to do that last comic standing uh, comedy-based reality show. I don't know if that's still a thing. But as far as an album that I can still quote ad nauseum, it's Dennis Leary's Lock and Load from the late 90s. I remember my buddies and I just really took a liking to it. And although much of it doesn't really stand the test of time, uh, he gets ahead of the craft beer movement and is a sailing beer that isn't beer-flavored beer and coffee that isn't coffee-flavored coffee. But I just like his approach, and he's kind of a wise guy. Um, Also, there's some comedians I remember more from parts in movies, like Sam Kinison and Back to School, and I know Don Rickles has been in a whole bunch of movies. So with YouTube and everything, I could maybe use to watch some of those sets and just see those guys and their actual element.
1: Sure. All great answers, guys, and uh, we want to say thanks to everyone out there for spending a little bit of time with us today, and remember, if you want to keep your employees, your colleagues, and your family members safe, we have just the publication for you, Family Safety and Health. Each issue is packed with helpful tips that will keep families safe at home and in the community, along with informational articles about your health. To get a free copy or to learn more, you can visit us at nsc.org slash wellness or Subscribe today by calling 800-621-7619. We'll be back next month with a new episode of On the Safe Side, but in the meantime, feel free to tell a friend about this podcast. If you'd like to share some feedback with us, our email is open anytime. You can email us at safehealth at nsc.org. And to find stories such as Alan's control banding article and all the latest news about safety and health, Visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com and make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course LinkedIn. We'd like to thank our NSC colleague and sound guru, Chelsea Yang, for all her help. Original music for this podcast was provided by Steve Maslin. On behalf of our team here at the National Safety Council and Safety and Health Magazine, we hope you and your friends and family are all safe and all healthy amid this COVID-19 crisis. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully we'll make you smile a little bit during this trying time. Until then, everyone, please stay on the safe side.